two verses of Psalm 89, which spoke of God's love and faithfulness. The next two verses say this about God. You said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. That's a reference to a very important promise that God made to King David long ago. Hear now how that came about as Esme brings us our reading. Our reading for this morning is taken from 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verses 1 to 17, and it's found in the Pew Bibles on page 310. After the king was settled in his palace... And the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. He said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says, are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought you to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, Did I ever say to any of their rulers, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and I appointed you ruler over my people, Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. And I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people shall not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, 
and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> I will be his father, and he shall be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. This is God's word to us. Thank you, Esme. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that in the written word and through the spoken word, we may see the living word, your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now what? Perhaps we've recently achieved some major goal. Now what? Maybe we've drawn a line under a chapter in our lives. Now what? That's the question that was on David's mind in our reading from 2 Samuel chapter 7. The previous two chapters are packed with major achievements. David had finally been appointed king over all of Israel. He'd defeated the nation's arch enemies, the Philistines. He'd captured the fortress city of Jerusalem. Indeed, he had made it his capital city and built his palace there. He'd also moved the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence. He'd moved it to Jerusalem and erected a tent to house it there. Now what? As David contemplated all his successes, he decided that he was going to do something for God. Nathan the prophet thought it was a great idea. But then matters took an unexpected turn. For God had a different answer to David's question. Now what? On first glance, our reading seems like a bit of a lull in the action after the dramatic events of the preceding chapters. However, David's conversation with Nathan was among the most significant that any king has ever had. Let's take a closer look at what was said, for it also speaks to us about our attitude to God, his plans for us, and our response to them. Our reading began with these words. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. David's line of thinking is clear. He's enjoying his fine big palace in Jerusalem. Surely God could also do with having an impressive house. 
So David proposed building him a temple. Indeed, in the ancient Near East, kings were expected to build impressive temples for their gods. Of course, they hoped for some divine favors in return for doing that. Nathan's immediate reaction was that this was a good idea. We read, Nathan replied to mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. It's understandable why he would have thought that, for long ago Moses had said that the nation was to have a central place of worship. The temple, for he agreed to David's son Solomon building one. But Nathan hadn't consulted God about David's plan. And it turned out that God didn't approve of it. We read, But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to live in? So, what was the problem? The book of Chronicles tells us that one obstacle to David uh, building this temple was that David had fought many wars and shed much blood. But our reading reveals that God also had further issues with David's proposal. For a start, contrary to what David had assumed, God didn't actually need a temple. He responded, I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. Did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? The point was this. The tent containing the Ark of the Covenant symbolized God's presence among them. Of course, a temple could serve the same function. But a symbol must never be confused with what it signifies. Centuries earlier, Moses had exclaimed to the Israelites, what other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us when we pray to him? Before any temple was built, the people needed to be clear that it was God's presence among them that was most important. Having a temple wasn't essential, and God certainly didn't need one. By the time the temple came to be built, Solomon had grasped that lesson. For at its dedication, he declared this, But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Lesson learnt, we might conclude. Unfortunately, history showed otherwise, for the people of Israel kept forgetting this lesson, despite repeated warnings from the prophets. Over time, they came to put their trust in the temple rather than in God himself. They concentrated on the outward forms of religion rather than listening to God's word and living to please him. It's a mistake that we also need constantly to guard against. 
So, to David's proposal to build a temple, God responded, not now. He wanted them to be clear that having a temple wasn't crucial. It was God's presence they should focus on. As we read on, we find another lesson that David needed to learn. Listen to what God said next to David through Nathan the prophet. Now then, tell my servant, David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you over my people, Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. The point was this. David had been reflecting on all his successes, on his power and on his wealth. He was now master of all he surveyed. And he was planning to do God a favour by building him a temple. What David needed to be reminded of was that all his achievements and his authority had come from God in the first place. God addressed him as my servant, David. Now, it's a great privilege to be called God's servant, but it put David's royal authority in its proper context. And God referred to the nation as my people, Israel. Ultimately, they were God's people, not David's. So we see here a further reason for God saying, not now, to David's plan. David needed to be reminded of where he stood before God. And he took it to heart. For when the people later brought their gifts towards the building of the temple, he prayed these words. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? And then, in those well-known words of the old authorised version of the Bible, he continued, For all things come of thee and of thine own have we given thee. We also need to take those words to heart. For all that we have, even life itself, comes from God. It's only when we grasp this that we can see our life and our possessions in their true perspective. Now what? David had wondered. His plan to build a temple had received the response not now, from God. But God did have a positive answer about what would happen next. He said, Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. What a striking message from God. In fact, it was even more striking than we might at first realize. For it's a deliberate echo of a promise that God had made to Abraham many centuries earlier. Back in Genesis chapter 12, we read, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great. David was now king of the great nation that God had promised to Abraham. David was bringing peace and security to them in the land God had promised them. 
and David's name would be great, for he would have a crucial role in God's plans, just like Abraham. Next we read, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. There's a play in words here, which works just as well in English as it did in the original Hebrew. David had wanted to build a house for God, a temple. Now God says he's going to build a house for David. But it was a different type of house building. For by a house here, God meant a dynasty, the house of David, just as the royal family in England is called the house of Windsor. God continued, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. This solemn promise is later described as a covenant with David, just as God had made a covenant with Abraham. As with Abraham, God's promise to David involved granting him a great name, an heir, and a special relationship. The throne of David would endure, and the kings who descended from him would be treated like sons by God. So David received God's answer to his question, now what? And it was beyond his wildest dreams. Long ago, God had founded his people by launching Project Abraham. Now he was sharpening its focus as Project David. And we see the start of its fulfillment as David's son Solomon succeeded him and built the temple in Jerusalem. God's message to David climaxed with these words. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Forever? Really? Surely no kingdom lasts forever. We find similarly sweeping promises in Psalm 2, where God says this to the king that he had installed in Mount Zion. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. The scope of such promises is breathtaking. No ordinary king could fulfill them. But as we read on through the Bible, we realize that the stage is being set for prophecies of a coming Messiah. Now the word Messiah just means anointed one. And any king of Israel was anointed. But the scriptures were looking forward to a particular descendant of David, a special king. And so, in the midst of faithlessness towards God, by many subsequent kings of David's line, prophets foretold how God's promise to David would ultimately be fulfilled. Isaiah wrote about a coming figure who would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He went on, 
He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Isaiah also prophesied this, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, that's David's father, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. And we're told that as a result of his rule, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. History shows that the house of David ruled for about four centuries, during which time the nation turned its back on God. Eventually, Jerusalem and its temple were destroyed, and the throne of David came to an end. It looked like the end of the road for the nation and for God's promise to David. Indeed, Psalm 89, which we heard from earlier in the service, later says this, Lord, where is your former love, which in your faithfulness you swore to David? Where are we going? But in spite of such an apparently hopeless situation, Jeremiah delivered this message from God. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. This is the name by which it will be called, the Lord our righteous Saviour. Those prophecies arose from God's covenant with David. And the New Testament declared that Jesus fulfilled them. The opening verse of Matthew's Gospel announces, This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And in Luke's Gospel, Mary is given this message about the child that she would bear. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. That's a very detailed echo of what God had promised David a thousand years earlier. And Jesus had the ultimate son to father relationship with God. The New Testament concludes on the same note. For at the end of the book of Revelation, Jesus sends this message to the churches. I am the root and offspring of David and the bright morning star. That is, Jesus has fulfilled what God promised to David and has brought about the dawn of God's new age. David was the greatest of all Israel's kings. He brought peace and security to his nation, but he also had many faults and failings. Ultimately, his greatness lay not in what he achieved, but in the role he was given in God's plan of salvation for the world. For behind David's throne stood the throne of God, and God's plan was centered on the Messiah, on great David's greater son, as the old hymn described him. Unlike David, Jesus was without fault. 
He offers peace and security to all peoples. And today, believers are the living stones that Jesus is putting together to build his new spiritual temple. So what should we take away from our reading? It began with King David sitting in his palace, pondering what great thing he could do for God. Reading on, we find that the chapter ends with David sitting before God, full of praise for what God would do for him. God even said this about his offspring, I will be his father and he shall be my son. Those are remarkable words. Even more remarkable is that they also apply to believers today. For Paul recalled them when he wrote to the Corinthians, I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Those words now apply to us through Jesus. So how should we respond? We can take our cue from David. He said this, if we read on to the end of our chapter, verse 28, Sovereign Lord, you are God, your covenant is trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to your servant. You are God, your covenant is trustworthy, you have promised. That was what David held on to. And then he prayed God's words into his life. There's no more secure basis for life than that. There's no other source of real blessing. So let's take to heart the lessons of this reading. Let's look past the outward trappings of religion and make sure that we focus on experiencing God's presence in our lives. Let's remember that all we have and are comes from God. Let's thank God for his great plan of salvation through Jesus, great David's greater son. And let's take God at his word, for he is God, his covenant is trustworthy, and he has promised. Amen.